So this is first Kings chapter one, starting in verse one. When King David was very old, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his attendants said to him, let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord, the king may keep warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Now Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Rei, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zoheleth near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the special guard, or his brother, Solomon. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in to King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you've said. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room, where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it that you want? The king asked. She said to him, My lord, you yourself swore to me your servant by the Lord your God. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves, and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest and Joab the commander of the army. But he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you, to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet arrived. And the king was told, Nathan the prophet is here. So he went before the king and bowed with his face to the ground. Nathan said, Have you, my lord the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you? and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has gone down and sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves, and sheep. He has invited all the king's sons, the commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest. Right now they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live King Adonijah! But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, 
and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he did not invite. Is this something my Lord, the King has done without letting his servants know who should sit on the throne of my Lord, the King after him? Then King David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came into the king's presence and stood before him. The king then took an oath. Surely, as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground, prostrating herself before the king, and said, May my Lord King David live forever. Is that uh, as far as you'd like to go, David, or would you like to go for Yeah, that, no, that's great. I mean, the story gets juicier and even better. But, yeah, it does. Um, <laughs> I, there, there's a, I think there might be a limit to the time that we have, yeah? Mm-hmm. Um, so we have a, a passage of the Haftarah that um, goes very nicely with the uh, corresponding Torah portion, because it's about death and families, and uh, succession. Uh, It's um, really a story of how God draws, you might say, straight uh, with uh, crooked lines. And, of course, it's a morality tale as well, because while in both passages, the Torah portion, which uh, is the death of Abraham, the death of Sarah and uh, the beginning of the um, Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob story. <clears throat> and the morality tale in these stories and in the life of King David and his successors is watch out, you might just reap what you sow. So Let's start with the, the the context of the story. <clears throat> We've come to the end of Samuel, and uh, we now have uh, the chronicles of the kings. Uh, probably in uh, the ancient world, there was very likely there was no first kings, uh, second kings. Uh, its division into two books is quite late. And we have 400 years of um, tragedy and um, dysfunction with a few bright spots uh, along the way. Uh, And then after the Book of Kings, we have the Book of Chronicles, which retells the story. And for our purposes, um, especially when it comes to David and his family, Chronicles um, tends to clean David up a bit and uh, takes away some of the you might say some of his his raw edges minimizes his mistakes. For example, Chronicles, if I'm not mistaken, uh, does not uh, remind us of the whole um, incident with Bathsheba or David's rape of uh, of Bathsheba. So David is on his deathbed. He has had a career, or he sorry, he has had a kingship. Uh, 40 years, the Bible tells us, 
uh, some of it, at least in the beginning, was quite glorious and blessed, and the latter half uh, was, you might say, very, very difficult, uh, and um, he suffers uh, many blows, but most of them, in, in a way, were uh, were self-inflicted. Uh, so in chapter one of Kings, we find it says he was very old and he could not keep warm. Well, he wasn't just very old. He was uh, feeble. You certainly read that he was impotent. Uh, perhaps the, all his zest or vigor for life has gone out of him. His memory doesn't seem to have been functioning uh, very well. And um, on his deathbed or in his declining years, he's kind of unaware of all the things that are happening in his family, all right, all the shenanigans. And we even have to ask the question, did he really, uh, maybe did he really, really care. In fact, his family has been nothing more than chaotic. And here the Bible, I think, is very interesting. Sometimes the Bible likes to, to tell us something, but it doesn't always tell us in the form of thou shalt do this or thou shall not do that. So here's the issue of polygamy. I think virtually every time uh, we read about a character in the Bible, who has more than one wife, um, the result is strife uh, and misery and chaos. And um, the Bible's way of saying, you know, this is certainly not God's uh, intention uh, for the human family. But people will say, but yes, the Bible, you know, allows polygamy, which people are now using as some kind of argument for uh, all kinds of current nonsense. The Bible is doesn't oftentimes say something, some, it doesn't say anything about polygamy. But if you look at whether it's Abraham or Jacob or Solomon or David, or or others, uh, you know, uh, family life becomes hell. And it reminds me years ago uh, when I was in Uganda, and I spoke to uh, a a group of the Anglican priests, and we somehow we started talking about this subject, and <clears throat> every one of them said that uh, there was a group of thirty or something. Virtually everyone. Um, said that uh, they came from a polygamous family, a family in which the father, a traditional African um, marriages, uh, had two or three two or three wives, two or three separate families, and again they said it was chaotic, and they hated it. They could not. Uh, they they could not uh, tolerate, and it seemed that from talking to them that you know they carried a certain some scars or some trauma uh, from the way that they were brought up because of all the strife between uh, one family uh, and another. So King David is not just old; 
but he's declining in the uh, he's declining in the midst of uh, of a chaos that in many ways he i think unfortunately has created <clears throat> so his advisor told told let's find a young virgin uh to wait on you okay and to keep you warm now in many cases um in fact, let me back up a second, because in a few minutes, I want to talk about measure for measure. I'm going to talk about sometimes, sometimes we reap what you sow. And this is a pattern that does occur throughout the Bible. But at the same time, you can't, you might say, overwork this principle. Uh, you can't... Um, you can't turn the Bible or the God into the Bible as someone who is living by the rules of karma. And so there's an interesting, but probably in the end, not very helpful um, understanding. Why is it that King David can't keep warm? And of course, many of the Jewish commentators, and I'm a big fan of Jewish commentary, Bible commentary, but again, not all of it's very helpful, and uh, with some of it, we should be a little cautious, although this one is entertaining. What is What was it about King David that uh, you know kept them from getting warm? Well, the, the Midrash says, King David, um, when he was running away from Saul, you may remember he cut Saul's um, clothing, corner of his garment, hit seat, seat, whatever, however you want to read that text. And in the ancient world, because clothing was so valuable and so expensive, not cheap throwaways like we have today, this was a, this was a pretty serious infraction or a sin. And therefore, now King David, now that he's old, right, he's reaping what he sowed uh, many years ago. That's taking a biblical principle, and you might say it's abusing it, and it's going way too far. What you have with uh, the um, the woman who we sometimes think of as a heating pad or an electric blanket is actually something uh, a little more, um, you might say, significant than someone to, you know, cuddle up uh, cuddle up with the king. She um, is probably best probably best to understand her uh, as you might say as an administrative assistant. Um, and we know that women in the ancient world, or a number of uh, the women in the ancient world, uh, actually ended up um, helping kings or somehow. Uh, being available to, to to kings, and oftentimes um, they were there as uh, some kind of a legal witness, right? With all kinds of shenanigans and manipulations and things uh, going on, uh, going on at court, um, she certainly was there to, um, you might say, um, safeguard the king and to keep him. Uh, uh, to be some kind of legal or protection or some kind of watchdog who would be with him uh, at all moments and uh, 
and very intimately. So Abishag, Abishag is uh, this this particular this particular woman. They found the beautiful young woman from a village. It seems to be in the north, in the Jezreel Valley. Um, she looked after the king. She took care of him. But of course, we read there's no hanky panky. Now, as King David is declining, uh, he his fourth son, uh, who it was um, from his wife Hagit, um, he began boasting, "I will be the king." Well, his his stepbrothers were dead. Uh, he was seemingly the uh, the next in line. And uh, here we have a story that, um, and again, we, we have to, I think, love and savor the intertextuality of the Bible. We can't read the Bible in an intertextual way, but we're just going to read this story, and we're not going to connect it uh, perhaps with other stories or, or other passages like the Bible itself does. We will be right all the poorer and so here we have a power play that's pretty similar to um, Absalom. Um, and so he says, I will make myself king. Wow, that's pretty significant there. So he provided himself with chariots and charioteers. He recruited 50 men to run in front of him. Um, and here's this very telling remark. Now, his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? Okay, he had been born next to Absalom, and he was very handsome, handsome right? Uh, obviously, there's a whole family system here that's not uh, working very well. And instead of you know, maybe modeling right, his life uh, after his father, uh, this young man ends up modeling his life for uh, being influenced by uh, Absalom. Um, and this, you might say, this lack of discipline, again, has led to the chaos, right? Amnon, Tamar, Absalom, um, and all the, yeah, the, the, um, Horrible, you might say, events that uh, begin to uh, to happen to to David. We know he's good looking, just like uh, Absalom is good looking, and Saul was good looking. But at the end of the day, that's certainly no qualification, right, or qualification for uh, for being king. So he takes the the general. Um, Yoab, yes, and uh, there, of course, this general is going to, in David's, yeah, declining moments, probably thinks, look, the king is dying, we've got to do something, we can't, you know, leave it to chance, we don't want a civil war, and of course, um, there's a split, right, in David's household with the in particular, Nathan, Nathan the prophet, uh, being um, uh, one who certainly doesn't go along with this, uh, and of course that's quite ironic 
being considering Nathan, uh, the role that Nathan will have uh, when we think about uh, his um, being the one who who confronted King David with his uh, with his sin. There's a party. Nathan, okay, Nathan and Solomon are not invited. Okay, and then Nathan goes to Bathsheba, Bathsheba, and she says, um, have you heard about this upcoming coronation? And this is where I think it gets really interesting because she, yes, Bathsheba, goes to David and she says, your son Solomon will surely be the next king and sit on, uh, and sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? And while you are still, and and while you are still uh, talking with him, I will come and confirm everything you have said. So Bathsheba went into his king's bedroom. Now, where do we know that uh, David ever promised this to Solomon? It's not clear, and what appears to be happening is that there is some kind of ruse or deception that's going on here. Now, does this sound familiar? Deathbed deception? How about Jacob and Esau? Isaac, right? Uh, you might think, well, wait a minute. But in 2.15, yeah, First Kings 2.15, you have... Uh, Adonijah, saying to Bathsheba, as you know, the kingdom was rightfully mine. All Israel wanted me to be the next king, but the tables were turned and the kingdom went to my brother instead. <clears throat> Younger brother. <clears throat> For that is the way the Lord wanted, wanted it. So now I have just one favor to ask you. Please don't turn me down. We'll probably we'll come back. Uh, we'll we'll come back to uh, to that to that particular uh, to that particular favor. So here's the story. This is where the the reaping what you sow um, gets very juicy, and we we don't have to guess or imply here. It's pretty evident from the scripture itself. Um, just as David manipulated Bathsheba, and, and I know there's a debate and this upsets people, but I'm of the, the school or I'm of the opinion that he, it's, it was a me too moment and he raped her. Uh, but still, there was a huge amount of manipulation involved. So the great manipulator Right is now being is uh, you know is now being what shall we say now being manipulated um, and look at how this kind of thing runs and runs in families. Um, you have the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I, I don't want to insinuate or to say these guys weren't. They didn't have God's favor. They didn't know God's grace. They they weren't ultimately righteous. We have to remember that God loves Israel for the sake of the patriarchs. 
but they made their mistakes. And while God um, works in and through and around our dysfunction or our sin or our disobedience, and he does forgive us, many times he certainly allows us to take the consequences yes, of, of our sin. So in the family of Abraham, we have deception and favoritism, right? Um, and lying. And of course, that those uh, sins go to the next generation with uh, Isaac and Rebecca. And of course, all of them seem to explode, right? They all seem to kind of get bigger generation after generation in the life of our favorite, one of our, surely one of our uh, most lovable uh, Old Testament characters, Jacob, right? Where the, the lying, the deception, right? Uh, gets, grows uh, proportionally. Of course, Jacob, the deceiver is, is deceived by Laban, later deceived by his sons. Uh, and of course, that brings huge amounts of heartbreak and pain and, and trauma. And the same, by the way, is going to happen in, in the life of David. David uh, will never fully live down or to uh, outrun, you might say, the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. Um, it, in a way, alters his kingship, and it even, in some ways, alters maybe what we we think of him. Um, he, um, his uh, rape of Bathsheba, uh, he has a son, Amnon, who does the same to Tamar. Um, and then he, uh, he has a son, Absalom, who murders, right, Amnon, just as David murders Uriah. And that the, the sin, yeah, the sin of murder, right, sexual abuse, right, and, and in this case, the misuse of power, it goes from David, starts off well, doesn't end quite so well, and we'll salvage his reputation a bit in a minute because we're not painting him totally with a black brush. But it goes to Solomon, who has some of the same, my same issues as his father. And then we just go through the book of Kings, and it somehow uh, gets it gets worse. And uh, I have um, a, a sister who um, has a saying, and her saying is, um, work on your stuff or your stuff will work on you, okay? Meaning in this, these kind of sins or these places that are not healed in families, they can't be wallpapered over by saying, oh, God has forgiven me, which is true. God forgave King David. He restored him to fellowship. But at the same time, those things, you know, those the the that, those kind of uh, sins, it doesn't just affect David. It, of course, right, 
was poison that went into that whole family system and then went, um, certainly went from, you know, uh, you know, generation, the generation to, to generation. Um, so this is, by the way, <clears throat> what ties, I think, our passage is significantly with um, the Torah passage, which is, uh, for last week, the life of Sarah. Sarah dies, Abraham dies, right? There's a continuation of, uh, there. you might say there's a succession. God's promises now goes to uh, Isaac and Rebekah, and then to, to Jacob, uh, uh, and more. And, um, of course, it's how these families deal, you might say, uh, with these uh, ongoing issues and how it, uh, you might say, mixes or taints uh, their, you know, their relationship, uh, their relationship uh, with the Lord. So... Um, we can say for sure Abraham had a much quieter, you might say a holier death than uh, uh, than David. David on his deathbed, uh, and this was pretty hard to take. And by the way, even the Jewish commentators could, could barely swallow this one. David on his deathbed is still having his enemies knocked off. Okay, uh, Sorry if I offend you, but it almost reminds me of a you know mafia don. Um, so it's not surely it's not something uh, very. So there's a deception involved, but again, the, this there was no question that Solomon was God's choice, right? So despite the human deception. Or despite the human corruption, God is still, you might say, having his way. But again, I'd just like to emphasize, uh, we can say, yeah, God will be the Lord and he'll be the king and everything will be okay in the end. And there's a lot of truth to that. But at the same time, who pays the price? We all pay the price for our disobedience or we all end up suffering, yeah, for... Um, for other people's sin. Uh, and by the way, when Nathan, you may remember, and when Nathan confronts David, um, there was uh, his, um, you might say it's a parable, uh, something of the parable, one of the, the earliest, uh, one of the earliest in the Bible. And that parable, um, Pretty much, uh, yeah, puts state points David out to be a, a thief and a murderer. And if we remember the scripture, yes, um, the what does it say? The recompense for stealing sheep, and of course that's. That's the imagery that uh, Nathan uses in the parable. I think we all remember it. You steal sheep, uh, and if you're caught and you have to repay, 
Um, how many times do you repay? Four, four times. And I don't know if folks have ever noticed. I think it's pretty, uh, uh, pretty clear. David, David doesn't die, but of course, four of his sons die. Um, the baby born to Bathsheba, he dies at birth. Uh, David's oldest son, Amnon, yeah, dies at the hand of Absalom. Of course, Absalom dies. And of course, his son here, Adonijah. You may remember when uh, Jesus can, uh, when Jesus goes through Jericho and he's on his way to Jerusalem and he meets Zacchaeus. And uh, Zacchaeus is a real repentant. Uh, not a lot of people in the in the Gospels, at least, are are actually fully radically repenting. And Zacchaeus doesn't simply say, "Oh, I'm sorry, and please forgive me." That's the kind of thing that many of us might do. Zacchaeus understands that real repentance involves restitution. And he says, look, Lord, I'm giving half of my goods to the poor. And if I had cheated anybody, I will repay them four times. Okay. That principle of the four, yes, uh, shows up uh, shows up in the life of David. And how heartbreaking it must have been to him. But again, he doesn't, he, for example, he knows, he knows about Amnon and Tamar. He doesn't do anything. Right, he doesn't do anything, um, and obviously in this we just read the verse and and Adonijah, right? He never disciplined him, and at any time, even by asking, "Why are you doing that?" Right, doesn't question. Certainly doesn't question his uh, son. So at the end, um, uh, um, interestingly. Uh, of course, who who has final sort of access to the king? It's the electric blanket or the heating pad. Who again? Who's much more? Uh, certainly, much more than this. And, and uh, Avishag is one of the. Again, she's a she's a pretty influential, uh, powerful woman uh, in his life, and so too is Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is very similar to Sarah. You may remember that Abraham's not quite sure, you know, what to do with Ishmael, et cetera, et cetera. Sarah says, throw him out. And the Lord says to Abraham, you listen to Sarah. So here the Lord is using women, less than perfect women, maybe with less than perfect motives, uh, but still women, uh, especially in the life of uh, Abraham and Isaac, um, maybe a little bit less so in the lives, lives of Jacob. Um, and here about Sheva is, she's a little bit like a Sarah. She, yeah, she is pushing the agenda. Um, and she, by the way, she's got this person, you know, she's got some kind of personal interest here, right? You know, she's it, something bad's going to happen to me and to, to my son if this... Uh, 
uh, Adonijah, if he he becomes king. So it's not just the power, the glory that you write. It's it's certainly uh, it's personal safety. Um, and of course, here's the story of uh, Nathan and Zadok. Um, they um, David David finally uh, finally acts. And uh, he's going to make um, he's going to make Solomon the um, the king. It's just beyond our reading, but of course they're going to go down to Ain Rogel, yeah, which is in the Kidron Valley, and um, so Solomon. Um, no, sorry, they go down to the Gihon Spring, not to Ain Rogel, but uh, the Gihon Spring is in, is, it's just under the city of David. And it's there at the spring that, uh, of course, the, um, that so, uh, Solomon is, um, Solomon is anointed. Um, <clears throat> so what do we make of all this? You know, again, here we have a family that's, uh, and family issues that are, are really quite tragic. They're again, they're repeated in Solomon, um, and they'll be repeated in uh, different different points, you know, along the way that you that you read in the uh, the Book of Kings. You know, David, in many ways, he's certainly he is an ideal king. He um, is well loved. Um, for many of his finer points, but even so, we shouldn't, you know, whitewash uh, like the Book of Chronicles does. We shouldn't whitewash his um, uh, his sin or his mistakes. And of course, it's uh, uh, Samuel. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's the books of Samuel and. Uh, First Kings that uh, that is quite honest with us, and uh, you know it's. By the way, there is a um, there's a trajectory here in uh, kind of Jewish and even Christian thinking, is that the Bible in of itself is pretty bluntly honest. Uh, you know, you might be God's man, God's woman, but boy, if you have any character flaws, they're going to be recorded. Um, and the Bible's quite, um, you might say, radical, revolutionary uh, in terms of, you know, of ancient literature. For, but um, as time goes along and we get into the Second Temple period and into the early church, and we even get into, you know, what becomes rabbinic Judaism, et cetera, et cetera, uh, Early Jews and Christians have a very, very hard time accepting many to this day that King David did all these things. Uh, all he was so flawed, you know. He, he, no, it couldn't be. And uh, in many modern Orthodox Jewish circles or ultra Orthodox Jewish circles, uh, they will find every possible way and they do to read the text to say that you know what happened with Bathsheba really 
didn't happen, or if it did, it was totally her fault, but not not the king's fault, not the guy with all the power, the money, the prestige, you know, it was this poor woman who either seduced her or it didn't uh, it didn't happen. And I remember a number of years ago, at the time, the prime minister of Israel was Shimon Peres, and he quoted, he, he recited a story in the Knesset uh, about David and Bathsheba and the sin of King David and the abuse of power. I tell you, there was a coalition crisis. You know, the ultra-Orthodox and his coalition, you know, if you don't take this back, we're leaving because that's not what really happened, right? No, that's uh, that's what happened. And uh, David, he is a model king, uh, flawed. He is an ideal king. And by the way, I should point out that what the the whole the the main job of any king in the ancient world, right, was to preserve order and to fight against chaos. Yes, social chaos, political chaos, um, military chaos. Yeah. Uh, and the king, along with the priest and a prophet, was to was to provide direction, right, security, safety uh, for the community. Um, and uh, in some ways, David started off really, really well. He had this heart for the Lord. He wanted to. Um, he wanted to ensure proper worship, which uh, Chronicles and Kings both uh, commend him for, right? Bringing the ark from what is today, Kiryat Yarim, Abu Ghosh, bringing it to Jerusalem, worshiping the Lord in a, in a, in a way of abandon, you might say. Um, wanted to build the temple, but he could not because he, he had... Uh, too much blood on his hands. Um, yeah, and again, David was one who was very quick to repent. And, you know, people who sometimes they come on tour with us and they were in the Jezreel Valley and we might be talking about Saul and how he was defeated by the Philistines. And... Uh, more than once, uh, uh, quite a few times, you know, really keen Bible students will say to me, but God was so hard on Saul, but David got off easy. Well, David was, uh, David was a pro at the end of the day, a lot more dysfunctional and uh, less put together in a way than King Saul was. But uh, you may remember that every time God confronted Saul, uh, Saul had an excuse. When God confronts David, right, for all his faults, David always takes the rap and said, yeah, I'm the man, right? Uh, I'm the one who did this. He, he doesn't, uh, he certainly doesn't make, uh, make excuses. But David's the ideal king. But what's really interesting is that even though in the New Testament we talk about Jesus as being uh, the son of David, Matthew makes that really clear, that he is a Messiah in the line of David. 
I think it's pretty interesting that Jesus never calls himself the son of David, right? That's never a title he uses for himself, right? Paul uses it, I believe, in first in Romans 1 uh, and other, but Jesus doesn't prefer that title about himself. And I'm sure it's nothing to do with David's imperfections, but if David is the ideal king and he becomes the model for the Messiah, which is clear in the Psalms and the prophets, um, that model can be misunderstood or mistaken uh, if Jesus right overly identifies with David. The people will begin to think, you know, maybe this Jesus who's very special. Maybe he's going to lead the war, going to lead the rebellion. He's going to, with the point of a sword, you know, throw, uh, throw the Romans, uh, throw the Romans out of here. Um, so again, uh, David, of course, um, that ideal king. Yeah, well loved, but flawed. Um, certainly isn't, uh, doesn't, uh, I think Jesus keeps a little bit of a distance from him, uh, or keeps a distance from that, that kind of, certainly that kind of, uh, that kind of kingship. Um, I don't know, maybe the British can tell me that, um, the musical piece, Zadok the Priest by Handel, um, maybe tell me after we, uh, after we have, uh, when we start having questions, uh, traditionally has been at the coronation of every British monarch, right? Um, and, uh, I was wondering if King Charles, yes, if this was, um, performed at his coronation as well, uh, the piece by Handel of course, remembers Zadok and Nathan um, going down to the Gihon Spring and uh, anointing uh, anointing uh, Solomon. So, okay, I think that's my time.